Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Hello, everybody. I'm Bill Roden. And as we continue covering how the world is changing drastically because of COVID-19, today we're recording this on a Monday afternoon. I'm at an undisclosed location outside <laughs> of Chicago. Uh, we're going to be talking to the president of Morgan State University about the impact this pandemic has had on not only just the university and historically black universities, but on the university community as a whole. And we're going to also talk about how the pandemic is going to change the face of our education uh, moving forward. Now, my normal Roden Fellows, co-hosts Randall Williams of Hampton and Whitney Bronson from Hampton, are off today. Standing in for the two co-hosts is uh, my friend, uh, Jamal, the great Jamal Murphy. Jamal Murphy, as some of you know, is my co-host on Bill Roden on Sports. He's an attorney a graduate of North Carolina A&T University, a proud graduate in Aggie, and he's holding it down in Brooklyn. Jamal, Murph, good morning. Good morning, Bill. Glad to be with you again. Yeah, in a different context. Our guest today is Dr. David Wilson. Dr. Wilson is the president of Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. He's got two pages worth of credentials. But first, I'll just say, uh, Dr. Wilson, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Bill, good morning, and thanks for having me. Absolutely. I know you've got a very busy schedule of interviews lined up, and in addition to those presidential things that you've got to do by Zoom. <laughs> uh, Dr. Wilson's been the president of Morgan since 2010, and before that, uh, he was a chancellor of the University of Wisconsin Extension at the University of Wisconsin Colleges from 2006 to 2010. He was the vice president for university outreach and associate provost at Auburn University, 1995 to 2006, and he was the first African-American to hold any administrative appointment at a predominantly white university in Alabama. Now, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. He was associate uh, professor, a provost at Rutgers University from 1990-1995, and, but most importantly, he was a graduate of Tuskegee Institute, and he earned his master's and doctorate from Harvard University. Dr. Wilson, this what's it been like going from January mm-hmm. with pre-COVID to now this? Uh, all I can say is that um, this is the kind of crisis in which we find ourselves, whereas leaders of institutions, they don't prepare you for while you are in graduate school. Uh, and as a result, as I often say to my cabinet, um, you can't lead uh, through COVID-19 from a textbook. Uh, you really have to gather as much intelligence as you can uh, at any given moment, and then you have to make a decision with the understanding that that decision that you made at 9 o'clock in the morning uh, might very well be uh, subject to being revisited at 1 o'clock because now you have additional intelligence that you have to consider. And so for me as president, uh, within a matter of hours, I had to make the decision uh, to tell students who had gone away for a spring break not to return to campus. I had to make a quick decision 
uh, to then take all of our classes, all of our classes that we were offering face-to-face and move them to an online remote modality. Now, as a result of those decisions, the financial impact is significant uh, because in making the decision to not have students return to the campus for the rest of their spring semester, we were the first institution in Maryland uh, to say we also want to refund the students their housing costs uh, that they are not utilizing. Uh, We're going to refund the students their meal costs. We're going to refund them a portion of their athletic fees. We're going to refund a portion of their parking fees. And we're going to refund a portion of their facilities fees because they're not using the facilities. We knew that it was going to cost us millions of dollars to do it. Um, But when we made that decision and made it public, our governor, Larry Hogan, held a press conference and held Morgan up as uh, one of the models for how we should be approaching this along with Johns Hopkins University and asked the University System of Maryland to follow our lead, which, of course, it did, I believe, the next day or so. So those decisions that we made ended up costing the institution about $16 million. You had said that you still have some students on campus. You said that it was just harrowing. You heard some of the stories. Could you tell us a little bit about those conversations about students who could not go home. Yeah, and so um, one of the things that uh, COVID-19 has revealed in very stark, in a very stark way, is the tremendous digital divide in this country. And this, of course, is not new to me in terms of understanding this digital divide, but it had not been as, as, as clear uh, right. And it had not been as clear on campus because we have invested, you know, millions of dollars here at Morgan, as many other institutions and many other HBCUs have, in ensuring that we have computer labs that are equipped and the technology on campus that will enable students to uh, do what they needed to do to embrace innovation and to uh, move along in their studies. I got emails from students saying, yes, Dr. Wilson, but I can't even go online and take my class because I don't have a computer. They had access to the computers on campus, but they don't have access to the computers back home. Well, I can't take the class on a consistent basis because I don't have the bandwidth from my cell phone because they didn't have the appropriate kind of Wi-Fi back in the home. And so that was the first piece is that we had to put in place fairly quickly ways to get computers in the hands of students that did not have them. And that resulted in overnighting uh, computers to students uh, and also working with some of the cable companies um, uh, to uh, see if we could uh, get uh, them to offer uh, free some packages to students as well. So as president, I got a completely different perspective on all of this, Bill. I even enrolled in two online classes myself uh, so I could find out exactly what the students were experiencing. And that was eye-opening. As a matter of fact, the Corona Education I found out that I was doing this and they came and they interviewed me and uh, said I was perhaps one of the only college presidents in America, but I was doing this. But I needed to understand what my students were experiencing and I needed to understand the challenge that the professors had who had not planned to teach in a remote environment. Dr. Wilson, I mean, you, you've expressed some of the hardships that your particular school is going through. Obviously, all colleges are going through hardships based on the virus. But the things that you expressed that you had to deal with, do you think that was that has particular 
a particular effect on HBCUs compared to other schools? Yeah, and so um, I, I think the uniqueness of uh, HBCUs and in, and many minority-serving institutions uh, in terms of the impact is simply that we typically minister to the needs of a larger percent of first-generation college-going students. And that is really where you begin to see the economic divide in the country. And as a result, yes, this has fallen disproportionately on the backs of first-generation college-going students whose parents don't have the resources to enable them to compete in this kind of online environment in the same way that parents of students who are from a higher socioeconomic a category have. Uh, so uh, Morgan cannot behave in the same way as Harvard or Stanford or Princeton or Yale. I, I mean, those were the institutions that got out there almost on day one and said, okay, we're closing our campuses. And then the students made a phone call to their parents and said, well, guess what? You know, we're, we're closing in the news media characters. So I think within a matter of hours, you know, they had plane tickets and the was showing up in Mercedes and BMWs and picking them up. And and our students, when we said that, we had to come up with money to help them get home. So, yes, uh, this is, if you will, is showing a disproportionate impact, both in terms of the way instruction is being delivered to our students on the one hand and the economic resources they have on the other to just simply get their things out of the residential halls, which we have to help them with. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we want to talk about uh, the impact this is going to have in other segments of the university. Dr. David Wilson, he's the president of Morgan State University in Baltimore. You know, Dr. Wilson, you serve on the Division One Board of Directors, and you also serve on the Board of Governors for Division One, which is a very prestigious position. But what can you tell us about fall sports at Morgan, but in general at college, Division One college? Okay. So um, let me issue a disclaimer uh, that uh, my comments uh, in no way reflect the views of the D1 Board of Directors of the NCAA, uh, nor the Board of Governors of the NCAA. But my okay. comments only reflect uh, my position uh, as president of Morgan State University. And so what I can say as president of Morgan State University is that uh, we will not be uh, fielding any fall sports at Morgan if the university is not having students at our institution in some capacity. And so in this space, uh, we at Morgan will lead with our values. And there is no way that we are having football if uh, we don't have students. And there's no way that we're going to have any other fall sports. If, for example, our campus is going to be uh, physically shut off to students and others traversing the campus itself. And I do think that when you um, uh, survey uh, university presidents, by and large, across the country, that you will find very little deviation from that point of view. Indeed, if I believe you were to look at comments made by Mark Emmert, a, a president of the NCAA over the weekend, that was, I think, a position that he has expressed as well, that based on his conversations across the spectrum, that he did not sense 
that any university presidents uh, were uh, warming to the idea of fall sports if they did not have students on their campuses. And certainly that point of view reflects where I am at Morgan State University. How does this affect kid who's been recruited, has heart set, was going to come to Morgan, play Morgan in the fall? Now, how does this affect the recruits? Well, everybody is in the same situation. And so, therefore, one institution, of course, would not have a recruiting advantage over another because every institution would be operating uh, from you know similar decisions. And, and so, in this case, I'm sure that if that student athlete that is coming to our campus is unable to do so in time to be ready for fall sports and that uh, the Division One governance structure would uh, allow for that student to have an additional year of eligibility so that they could have the complete college experience uh, as a student athlete that they really wanted to have. If I'm a freshman and I was planning to go to Morgan to play football, but there's not going to be football involved, I'm still going to get my scholarships, right? Well, I would have to receive some additional kind of guidance on this, but that certainly would be my point of view, is that those, I think, should be honored and the students should not be punished, but should be given an additional year of eligibility. And in uh, a lot of ways, this could actually improve graduation rates and retention rates among student athletes because, you know, we are giving them an additional semester or perhaps, yeah, an additional semester or two to to get a jump start on their coursework without really having um, a schedule. Now, that would be a positive kind of way of looking at this. And we at Morgan, of course, are paying a lot of attention to our graduation rates and our retention rates. And and given the demands that we place on our student athletes, uh, we always want to put them, uh, in addition to the rest of our students, in the best possible position to succeed. Who do you take your cues from as far as, you know, how you move forward in reference to the virus, there seems to be, you know, especially in sports, there seems to be a disconnect. Fans seem to think that the leagues, the leagues or the colleges can just act on their own. Do you take your cues from federal leadership? You know, there, there seems to be a lack thereof. Um, or is it state leadership or is it the doctors? Who are you looking to to base your decisions on? We're fortunate to, you know, have so many world class physicians, uh, scientists, public health officials in our state. And I think the governor is taking the advice and is using that advice to make the decisions that he has made. So I'm paying very, very close attention to that leadership, first and foremost. Uh, then second, uh, here on our campus, you know, we have a school of community health and policy uh, with a number of uh, health professionals within our school. I have put in place a university preparation and preparedness a committee to guide us as we think about reopening in the fall. What would that look like? What do we need to have in place in terms of protocols, in terms of social distancing, in terms of tracing, in terms of testing? What do we need to do in terms of sanitizing all of our facilities? How do we how do we construct the classroom space in such a way that perhaps you know droplets from one student will end up uh, on another student? Uh, how do we configure residential housing on campus? If we still are thinking about perhaps two students to a room, will that work for us? If so, then what are the kind of barriers we need to put in place uh, to prevent the spread of COVID-19? And so my dean of the School of Community Health and Policy, Dr. Kim Sitnor, is one of the co-chairs of this task force. And so we will be bringing forward recommendations, uh, that group of about 40 people will be bringing forward recommendations to me, uh, but those recommendations are going to be rooted in science. They're going to be rooted in 
uh, the advice of the public health officials. And then last, I have uh, reached out to a national leader in this space. Uh, she is the former health commissioner for the city of Baltimore, Dr. Alina Wynn, and I've asked her to consider advising us in this space as we move toward a possible a reopening of the campus. And so what we're saying here is that we're going to be making decisions here at Morgan based on science, not on politics. We're going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, we just talk to you briefly about McKinley, Alabama. <laughs> and how you got from McKinley to uh, where you are now. We'll be right back. Our guest is the great Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan University. Be right back. guest and, and my friend, Dr. David Wilson, president of my alma mater, in case you didn't know that, Morgan State University. And Dr. Wilson, you know, you've got a fascinating backstory. You, know, you grew up in a Penley, Alabama on a sharecropper's farm. You had 10 siblings. When you just think about how you got from point A to point B, I'm sure that when you talk to students, you when you tell them what you've been through and how you got from point A to where you are now, what type of impact did that have on students to realize that you're just not making this up, that you sort of know how to make a way out of no way? Well, you know, uh, students are stunned uh, when they actually hear me talk about how my life was saved uh, by the magic of education, uh, because I think they look at me as sitting in the presidential chair and they read my bio and they never, ever even think uh, that I had to struggle uh, in any way. Um, and so I was the youngest of 10 children. And my father had a system in place initially where none of us would go to school. And there were no laws in Alabama that required black children to go to school. But eventually he said, OK, so I'm going to allow you to go to school two days, one week, and you stay out three. And then you reverse it the next week. The first five brothers, of course, uh, could not withstand that kind of arrangement. And so um, they literally did not even finish first grade, all illiterate. The rest of us, we, we, we figured out a way to make our way through that. And so for me, I was in the seventh grade, as I recall, before I attended school five consecutive days. So along the way, I went to a Rosenwald school from grade three through five, and that was one room school with a pot belly stove in the center, one teacher, and that teacher taught grades one through five. And so when I finished the fifth grade, I went to the school where I eventually graduated from a high school. It was a K-12 school. And my sixth grade teacher was the late Mrs. Luvenia Abernathy Coates, the sister of the late Ralph David Abernathy. And uh, she pulled me aside one day and she said, David, look, I want you to go home and, and take a message to your father for me. And I said, yes, Mrs. Coates, what is the message? And she said, I want you to tell your father that if he could figure out a way to send you to school five days a week, I think you could go to college. That was the first time I'd ever heard the word college. And so I raced home and I told my father what Mrs. Coates had said. And he looked at me and he said, boy, he said, college. He said, let me tell you something. He said, college is for white folks. Hmm. 
And we never, ever spoke about college again. And so five years passed and I had applied to Tuskegee, the only school, by the way, that I applied to because my ninth grade vocational agriculture teacher was a graduate of Tuskegee. And he took me and five other students over to their annual farmer's day. And I could not believe that institution. It was upper middle-class life that I had never seen before. I'd never seen homes like that. I'd never seen well-manicured lawns like that. I had read a Booker T. Washington, but he took us immediately to the statue on the campus, and we touched the statue, and I just felt that my whole world had been turned upside down in the most positive way. And so I just wanted to go to Tuskegee and did everything I could in high school to be admitted. And so I got admitted. And so this is uh, August 26, 1973. And, and so as I gathered my little things in the house and put them uh, in a bag, and I was about to go out the front door, uh, I heard someone get up in the adjacent room, and it was my father. And he came into the front room, and he said, David, and this time he called me by my name. He said, I'm so proud of you. He said, you're about to do something that no one in his family has ever, ever done. He said, boy, you are about to go to college. He said, you know, you told me you wanted to go to college five years ago. And do you recall what I said to you? I said, oh, yes, daddy, I do. I do recall because it was so hurtful. And he said, let me tell you what I was really thinking. He said, what I was really thinking was, how in the hell am I ever going to pay for you to go to college? But he said, you know, I've been saving for the day. He said, I've been saving for the day when I would see my little David go out that front door. And he reached his hands in his overalls and he pulled out something that he called a piece of money. And he said, now hold out your hand, son. So I held out my hand and he put this piece of money in the palm of my hand and he put his hand over mine. And he said, now, this is all that I have. I want you to use it wisely. This is my investment in you. And I looked at his face, and, it was, and, and he was crying. It's the first time I'd ever seen my father cry. And I said to him, well, thank you, Daddy. You know, I will. I will do the best that I can. And as I uh, went on the front porch to catch the ride to Tuskegee and open my hand, uh, there in my hand was a crisp $5 bill. Hmm. And so that was really what he had saved to send me off to Tuskegee. And the cost was over $2,000 a year. And I had $5. Now, along the way, I gain an appetite for knowledge and the power of education in this little shanty that we had grown up in because we didn't have any any electricity or any plumbing. And so the whites on whose property we lived on would bring down to the shanty Look and Life magazines. And my mom would take them and have us create a plaster to take the pages and plaster them on the walls of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. And so on those days when I was not in school um, and I would come home from the fields, I would use a kerosene lamp and go around the walls of the shanty reading the pages of Look and Life magazines. And I discovered that there was a big world out there. I mean, I literally went all over the world without ever leaving the confines of that little shanty. And that is when I began to understand that education was my way out, Bill. And when I became the 10th 
inaugurated president here at Morgan. And I had prepared what I thought was a great speech. <laughs> my late father was just in my ear. I could not get him out of my ear. And he said, remember the $5. You know, you would not have this opportunity without that $5. And I'm having this imaginary conversation back and forth. You're like, $5, do you know how much debt I'm in? I have four degrees. And I have enough debt to buy a three-bedroom house. And you are talking about $5 repaying you? He said, $5, $5. So the chair of the board introduced me to give my speech. The place was packed and I got up and as I'm making my way through what I thought was my well-prepared speech, I mean, he came into my ear again and it just, I just couldn't go on. And he said, $5, $5. And so I ended up telling the story and then he said, but that's not all. It's time for you to repay me. And so without really knowing what I was doing, I announced a $100,000 gift. Uh, to Morgan uh, to start the $5 scholarship program here in his honor. And that program now has grown to about $1.5 million and Mm -hmm. used the proceeds to help other young promising students like a David Wilson, to taste the magic of higher education and to realize their dream. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a phenomenal story. I can't wait to read the book. Hey, I guess it's been a great Dr. Wilson. And Dr. Wilson, thank you so much. This was uh, phenomenal. And I'm sure that we will be touching base down the road. But good luck. God bless. And I'm sure that you will lead Morgan in a positive direction. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you as well. And Jamal, good luck to you as you move forward. Thanks for listening to the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by the great Arthur Cribb. A special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm Bill Roden, and I've been your host. Get all of your 468 podcasts by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another scintillating episode of HBCU Podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great, safe week, everyone. <laughs>